Uh, turn one more time to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we finish our series on the Ten Commandments, we'll be looking at uh, verses 18 and 19. Exodus chapter 20, and beginning uh, in verse 18, after uh, the ten are given and Moses speaks, we have the response of the people, beginning in verse 18, which helps us understand how God's people initially respond to God's law. And it's not necessarily much of a happy response, but there is something to learn here. And and thankfully, Scripture does not end in verse 19. We'll end up, by the end of the sermon tonight, out out of Exodus 20 and in Hebrews. And I promise you, it it does get better. But the good news about how we respond to God's law and what God offers to us lawbreakers cannot be arrived at until we look at the bad news of how we stand condemned by failing to live up to the demands God has put on us. And after we look at the bad news, the good news becomes all the more sweeter. So look at verses 18 and 19 with me. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll jump into the message uh, tonight. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Title of my sermon tonight is this, and this is how we'll conclude our series, The End of the Law, How the Ten Commandments Help Us Rest in Jesus. Father, as we look to your word tonight, help it to challenge us. May you give it free reign in our souls so that we would get a glimpse first of all of who you really are, and then we would take that inward glimpse and get a realistic view of who we are. Help us to look to our Savior tonight in light of our disobedience, in light of our failures, in light of our spiritual weakness that just lives in us. Help us to look to Christ and in him find the peace with you that all of us need. I pray that if there's a non-Christian among our gathering tonight, that they'd be drawn to Christ for the first time and that they would realize this good news is being offered to them. And for those of us who know you, your son and who are adopted in your family, may we be drawn to Christ afresh and remember what we so easily forget. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you fix that quickly, you'll remember that toward the beginning of Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, he hears about a shortcut. Someone comes up to him and tells him that he does not have to go to the place of deliverance. He can skip that and all of the hardships to follow by taking this shortcut in a town named Morality. And if he goes to this town named Morality, he is promised a helper, a man by the name of 
legality, who will show him how to get to the celestial city without going to the way of the cross. On his way to the town of morality, Christian is stopped by this imposing mountain. In, in fact, uh, as he nears the mountain, he is afraid it will fall on him. It, it goes from being near him to, to, to coming over on top of him as if it's, it's coming down and going to crush him. It's smoking, and it's, there's, there's lightning, and there's fire. And thankfully, before Christian goes any further, evangelist comes, like he often does, and pulls Christian back on the narrow path so that he can get his burden removed. And Bunyan was familiar with this temptation for those who would want to be right with God. The shortcut town of morality which as uh, the, the time in church history he was in and the people that he knew, a lot of whom were not people that were born again, but were people who were culturally Christian and trying to live good lives to make God happy. That's a bunch of the people he ministered to. He had seen what happened to people who tried to take this shortcut. And instead of giving people deliverance, instead of freeing people of the burden of their sin and guilt, trying to please God simply by keeping his law, crushes them. And so in his book, he warns us of this supposed shortcut. The, the mountain does represent God's presence, and obviously Bunyan's talking about Sinai. And God was at Sinai. But God's presence, despite the Facebook memes that you've read about Christianity, God's presence doesn't always mean comfort. Sometimes it means fear. Luther said, outside of the cross, God, if you really know him, is terrifying. And that's what we see in verses 18 and 19 of Exodus chapter 20. The people hear the Ten Commandments. These, these ten rules, all the, all the commands of the law, the over 600 commands of the law can be summed up in these moral demands that God makes on his people. If you want to be godly, this is what it looks like. And after hearing them, the, the people, don't, they're, they're not taking notes. They're not saying, oh, I'll have to file that away. Those are some cool ideas. Those are some nifty life hacks. Thanks, God. That's really cool. Really cool stuff going on here. They're terrified, as they should be. Why? Because God is telling his people, he is revealing to them how he wants them to live. And he's giving them a standard that they cannot live up to. If we respond to God's law in a nonchalant way, or in a self-righteous way that says, like the young man who was disappointed when he met Jesus, all these have I kept from my youth up, then it simply means we don't understand God's law. But if we take a close look at God's law and see how we fail to measure up, then it leads us to the same place where the Israelites are at, where Christian is at as he is under his burden and now under the mountain, wondering, how in the world can I please a God with these kinds of demands? So the people are afraid. And God's law, but that's, this is number one in your notes, by the way, if you have a little handout, God's law and our fear. The people are afraid because God has spoken and revealed himself. There would be something less fearful if God was silent. 
but the smoking, burning mountain, the sound of the trumpets, which would, by the way, sort of remind them of war, right? It's the sounds of war, and it's the sounds of destruction in nature. In other words, God is a conquering king. He is over nature, so you have the thunder and the lightning, and he has the sound of trumpets because God has armies and God executes justice on people who don't meet his demands. And the Israelites are those kinds of people. They're serving a God who is going to judge them, who stands over them, who has the right to tell them what to do and what not to do. And they know God well enough after seeing the plagues in Egypt that this is not a God of empty threats. When, when God tells his people that he will judge their sin if they don't obey, it's not like the passive parent who makes a threat to their child they never intend to keep, only to scare them. They've seen what God did to Pharaoh. They know that when this God says you have to live a certain way or else, he really means the whole or else part of the deal. And if they sensed this was a life-threatening encounter, they were right. In his sermon on the Ten Commandments, Spurgeon notes the, just the intensity of what's going on in the mountain. He writes, Not with the sweet sound of the harp, nor with the song of angels was the law given, but with an awful voice, with terrible burning. The scene at Sinai was in some respects a prophecy, if not a rehearsal, of the day of judgment. So God's people are terrified. God's law brings fear. And as we look at God's God's law, if we take seriously this idea that God tells us how to live, that God makes demands, then we will know, number one, that we're in trouble with the law. And then number two, we recognize that that means we're in trouble with God. And if that's where your mind goes, then you're absolutely right. So God's law brings with it this sense of fear. And with fear, comes the desire for someone else to handle our relationship with God. Right? So this takes us to verse 19. This is the old, if you're in your notes, the old mediator and Israel's sin. The Israelites hear these rules, and they're not particularly excited about them. Rather, hearing these rules, which run against all the ways that they think and all the ways that they live, they recognize if we're going to have a relationship with God, we need some help. Which leads them naturally to verse 19. It leads them naturally to this desire for a mediator. This relationship with God is too much for us to handle. We need some help. So Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. That's a confession coming from people who have heard from God, right? Now people will tell you things like, I just wish I could hear God's voice so he could prove to me that he's really there. That's not what the Israelites are saying. They've experienced God enough to say, whatever you do, Moses, please stop God from talking to us. (laughs) Well, one of the first things people do when they realize they are in trouble with the law, well, there's two things. They may run away, like go to a different country, or the, the more normal option is to hire a lawyer, right? I've broken this law. It's really complicated. I'm scared of the government because they have these things called prisons. So I want to hire a lawyer. Why? Because I I realize that I violated these rules and I don't, this relationship between me and the government is not something I want to handle on my own. This relationship between me and these broken laws is not something I want to like play solo with. So I'm going to hire a lawyer, a mediator, someone to help me manage this relationship and hopefully it'll turn out better for me, right? 
When, when people commit a crime and they realize the gravity of it, they realize the kind of trouble they can get in, they want to have someone to speak for them, to represent them. So the people want a mediator, and they ask Moses to do that. Moses, the mediator, would stand in the gap between two parties. That's what a mediator does. He's going to handle the covenant between God and God's people. And the Israelites aren't wrong to desire Moses to do this. It just means they, they, they take seriously who God really is. If you take seriously who God really is, you won't be cavalier about having a relationship with him. Now, some people are cavalier about that. They say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need some born-again experience. David, I believe God is so gracious and so kind that, me, like me and God... We, We understand each other. Has anyone ever told you that? Now, the Israelites know enough about God to know that's not going to fly. God has too many rules that they have broken to think that they can just trust themselves to fix this. So they want Moses. And Moses would be their mediator. So that takes us to verse 21. The people are standing afar off. Moses draws near. Moses is walking, this is such an amazing picture, isn't it? Moses is walking up to the burning, fiery, smoking mountain, the mountain of thunders. And as Moses gets closer, the people get further away. The mediator is the person who can go where no one else would dare to go. For God himself, in order to establish a covenant with them, they would need someone to help them represent them, I'm sorry, before God, Moses would do that. Now, the reason Moses' work as mediator matters is because all of God's people, even us, need a representative too. Even if you weren't there, standing under the mountain as God spoke, Paul says in Romans 1 that all of God's laws have been written on our hearts, even the hearts of Gentile pagans. And that's basically what we were, most of us were saved from, was Gentile paganism or secularism. But like the the people of God who were originally under Sinai, Paul goes on to say that we need someone too who will represent us before God. Why? Because all of us are sinners. We are aware that there's a God who made us. Everybody knows that. However far they have suppressed that and pushed that down in their hearts. We are aware that there is a God who made us. We we didn't create ourselves. We're not here on our own. And we all know that one day we will give an answer to this God who made us. We'll have to give an accounting for how we have lived and how we have disobeyed his many laws that he has put in our hearts and in this universe. God did not create a world where anyone could do whatever they wanted to do. But the law has limits. That's number three, the limits of the law. The law is helpful because as the people are at Sinai and as you and I examine the Ten Commandments, we hear God. We get a clear word from God who says, I want my people to live a certain way. If you want to be in a relationship with me, if you want to know me, if you want to spend eternity with me, you have to be a certain way. But it's also terrifying because none of us can fulfill these things. 
I think this is really helpful for us to understand, especially after studying the Ten Commandments. Because while this series, I believe, has been helpful for us, it can also be very discouraging. It can be very discouraging. Now, one of the things we did this series, one of the things that I did, and that you've noticed that Pastor Tyler has done as he's uh, preached some of these verses in the Ten Commandments, uh, some of the commandments before this series, you thought you were kind of okay on, right? But by the end of every sermon, we managed to show you that you were disobeying it somehow, like all of them. Now, that could be if you're uh, like curious about how a minister is going to handle a particular Bible passage, that can kind of be interesting fodder. Oh, that's what they did with the Sabbath. I guess I'm guilty of that too. Oh, that's cool. But if you care about your relationship with God, that's also very discouraging. You may have came into this study many weeks ago thinking you were good with at least three or four of the commandments only to realize you violated all of them and continue to violate all of them in lighter ways than you may have supposed God demanded. But what we realize as we look closely at the Ten Commandments is that there are no easy ones. And that's very discouraging because we know that God despises our sin. I kind of hope it's been discouraging for you a little bit. And if it's not been, I'm just I'm wondering if you've really engaged it. But if we take a close look at God's law, there's something discouraging about it because we realize even though we, we are desperate to be self-righteous, we we if you have a personality that that hates needing to ask for help, you know what it's like to, to need to ask for help with something you can't do on your own? But I think spiritually, all of us are like that with our righteousness. Even if you're not a do-it-yourself kind of person, a DIYer, I only recently, in the last couple of years, knew what DIY meant. Then I was like, oh, that, that makes sense. Even if you're not the type of personality, when it comes to our righteousness before God, we hate admitting that we cannot do that. We hate admitting how unrighteous we are, how full of sin we are, how much we love to disobey God. And it really is a love thing. We, we, we go against the Ten Commandments because we want to. We don't rest because we love to act as if we're in control of our own lives and we don't need to depend on God. We imagine God in the wrong ways, command number two, because we think we can, because we're arrogant. We lust because we want to, because we enjoy it more than we enjoy God. We hate people and murder them in our hearts, not just because we're sinners and we sort of accidentally fall into that, but because we truly enjoy doing that more than we enjoy obeying God. So if you take a long look at that and you take it seriously and recognize that Exodus 20 comes from God's mouth, this will discourage you deeply to realize that we're sinners now you may say, well, David, I'm a Christian. I already know I'm a sinner. I did the ABC thing. I, I, I got that figured out. But, but Christians can also forget after they are converted what it really means to be a sinner. So why do we break the Ten Commandments? We break them because of our desires. We break them because we love to sin. We break them because we are the kinds of people who like to serve other false gods, even though we have encountered the true one and have no excuse. This is what God is saving us from. And so as we encounter God's law 
it, it can sort of break us. This happened to, to David Brainerd after he became a Christian in a period when he struggled with a lot of doubt. There's another book you should read, by the way, is David Brainerd's autobiography. If you've not read that, you need to read it. Uh, it, there was a season of his life where he was just so discouraged uh, about this, this need for assurance of his salvation. And it was precisely because of God's law and how it indicted him. He said, I found it impossible for me after my utmost pains to answer the law's demands. I often made, made new resolutions, but as often I broke them. I found that it condemned me for my evil thoughts and sins of my years, which I could not possibly prevent. In other words, it just wasn't just his present sin. Brainerd couldn't stop forgetting all the sins of his past. And he had no way to go back and change those. And so he just felt perpetually guilty. And this man dealing with perpetual guilt, though he wanted to serve Christ and did in some incredible ways, had this struggle of wondering, how can God really forgive me? if I've disobeyed him in all of these ways. But you see, this is the limit of the law. This is where it, it sort of runs its course. It is not our final destination. Romans 3.20 says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, since we can't perfectly keep the law, it serves to condemn us. That's one of its purposes. It, it doesn't make you feel good, not if you really read it. It makes you feel bad, and that is part of why it exists. It makes us take a few steps back from the mountain and realize, if I'm going to have a relationship with this kind of God, I need someone to mediate it for me. I need, I, I've broken laws that are so serious because they come from a person who is infinite and wonderful and glorious. If I have went against him, I need a mediator to help me because I can't do this on my own. I realize a lot of us in here are Christians. But Christians can fall into the trap of self-righteousness. Christians can gauge, if, if they're asked, hey, are you right with God? They can sort of gauge that question by thinking to themselves, well, how have I been living this week? Christians can live without confession of sin. Where they go for long periods not regularly talking to God about their sin agreeing with him, taking his side on it. Christians can treat every feeling of guilt and shame with an I'm going to try harder band-aid. Have you ever done that? Man, I feel really guilty about this. I feel really crappy about this because I messed up. All right, I won't do this again. I'll do really, really good next time. I'm going to be a good little boy, a good little girl. God's going to be so happy with me when he sees how hard I'm trying. The, the try better band-aid. That's not how we're supposed to deal with our guilt and shame if you're saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christians can confuse discipline with punishment. Now God does discipline us. He chastises us. That means he instructs us to awaken us to our sin. And the purpose of this discipline or this, this chastisement um, that Hebrews um, 11 talks about, or, or Hebrews 12 talks about, is to bring the fruit of righteousness. In other words, God does certain things in our lives to convict us, to awaken us to our sin. That could be circumstantial. It could be during a sermon. It could be in a conversation with a godly friend where you realize, I've been messing up in this way. and I need to, I need to stop doing that. But discipline is not punishment. 
Some of us can read providence like Job's friends tried to read providence. Why did this thing happen? God must be getting back at me. That's not how it works. If you did something sinful, having a flat tire is not getting back at you. That's not punishment. Hell is punishment. And as long as you're not there, you're not being punished for that. By the way, we're not supposed to punish our kids. God, if, you, if your child lies, God will punish them for that or forgive them for that. Your job is to correct them, to discipline them, to teach them. The purpose of, of discipline is, is, to, is like what God does with his children, to chastise, not, not, to, not to punish. God is the one who punishes. But as Christians, we can get that confused. We can be worried and, and fretting and, and scared and looking around us thinking, how is God going to judge me next? As if we forget that our sins have already been judged. Worst of all, Christians can act like high priests instead of under priests. We can act as if our walk with God is completely between him and our efforts, however meager they may be. Now, when you think that when you view your relationship with God is just between him and you, and you leave out your mediator, like you leave out Jesus, one of two things will happen. You'll either have a false sense of confidence if you're super conceited and think, I'm doing okay. God is happy with me because I've been a pretty good boy. You'll, you'll either be super conceited or on the other hand, you'll just be feeling guilt and shame all the time. If you're realistic about your sin and if you're awakened to it, you'll think, man, my relationship with God must be terrible because look at all these terrible things I'm doing. So when you, when you leave out your mediator, when you view yourself as your own high priest before God, you will either be lost in conceit and unaware of how bad your sin really is or, compl- or, or constantly burdened down with guilt that Jesus wants to remove. And you're not letting him. You're saying, like, I want to keep this. I want to keep, it's like you want to keep the burden on your back. I want to feel guilty all the time. You refuse to let Jesus take it from you because you want to be your own high priest. And even Christians can act as if we are our own mediators. But here's the good news. Number four, we have a better mediator. (laughs) A better mediator than Moses. And this is how, by the way, again, the law is not our final destination. If you're a Christian, you know, the Ten Commandments is not a series to lead you to think, this is how I can be a, a, a better person and fix my life and just make things go really swell. No, the Ten Commandments, along with the rest of the law, point us back to Jesus. They point us back to Jesus. They condemn us for our sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery makes us remember that we are adulterers at heart. Not so we try to become perfect on our own, and, and not either so we just sit in our shame and feel terrible, but rather to take us back to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our adulteries. Jesus can do what the law cannot do. Romans 8.3, For the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is our mediator. Like the Israelites, if they're going to have this covenantal relationship with God, they needed someone else to handle that. They needed someone else to stand before them. They needed someone else to walk toward the mountain. We need a mediator too, and we have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
First Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom. This is, by the way, Paul is going to say, here's what qualifies him to be our mediator. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In other words, he, he literally died for us so he could have this position as our mediator. Now, Jesus' death is a lot of things. It brings us to heaven. It gets us out of hell. But one of the things Jesus' death does is proves that he can be our mediator. In other words, it demonstrates, Paul is saying, that he is qualified to handle our relationship with God by giving himself as a ransom for us. The book of Hebrews describes this mediatory work by drawing a comparison with Moses. Hebrews Chapter 3, for this man, is what the writer of Hebrews is doing there, is making an argument to say that if Moses handled Israel's relationship with God, Jesus is infinitely more qualified to handle our relationship with God. And this is the assurance for the Christian. The Israelites only got a glimpse of what would save them. But we see it now in picture-perfect clarity. They looked forward to the Messiah doing something to make them okay with God. We look back on it knowing exactly what happened. And that explains the difference between us. So the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 18 through 20. It's actually not a comparison, it's more of a contrast. For ye are not come into the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they had heard and treated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In other words, remember they were asking, God, don't talk to us. Stop talking to us. The writer is saying, you're not in that position, for they could not endure that which was commanded. We're not standing at Sinai anymore. Why? Because we have Jesus. Jesus does everything a mediator is supposed to do. He is our go-between. He goes to God for us. He prays for us. He stands, he argues our case. Perfectly. He's the one, as we're backing away from the mountain, he's the one going toward it. He's the one who can talk to the Father. And by the way, Moses did a lot of, made a lot of mistakes and messed up before God the Father. But Jesus, our better mediator, it is he who the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that who you want going to the mountain for you? He's able to do what only Moses foreshadowed because Jesus Christ is truly God. The, the, the one we're saying, I'm going ha- to have you handle my relationship with God. I'm going to have you take care of my sin. I'm going to have you take care of my guilt. The person we're putting that on is God himself. There could be no one in the universe more qualified to handle your relationship with God than God. And that is what we are offered in Jesus Christ. I hope you appreciate the difference. This is not Moses we're talking about. Now Moses had some great qualities about him. He looked like Charlton Heston, right? And not all of us have that advantage. But Moses did dumb stuff. Moses, what are you doing? I'm beating this rock with a stick over and over again until my arm falls off. Why? Because I'm mad. Like, that was the person who handled their relationship with God, right? And we have the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why, Christian, you don't have to deal with your guilt through atonement exercises. 
This is why if you're feeling ashamed, you don't have to close in on yourself and think about how terrible of a person you are and how God doesn't know you anything and how God doesn't care about you. You don't have to go to those dark places that some of you live in all the time because Jesus handles your relationship with God. He is your mediator. So here's how we respond to the Ten Commandments and really how we respond to all of God's commands if we're Christians and if we're thinking right. We respond to God's demands by resting in Jesus' mediatory work. Now, I want to make something clear. This response doesn't mean persisting in sin and every once in a while, as we're on our path, as we're going down that road, persisting in our sin, clinging to our sin, loving our sin, every once in a while saying, God, forgive me. No, that, that's, that's, this is not Jesus' plan for you. Rather, Jesus, this, this new mediator, Moses was powerless to change the people's hearts. That's why Moses was so darn frustrated all the time. He couldn't fix them. He couldn't change them. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when they talk about this new covenant, this new arrangement, that's what a covenant is, between God and his people, Jeremiah says that someone is going to do something so powerful that the people's hearts will be changed so that they want to obey God's law. So having Jesus as your mediator doesn't mean, again, you're going to have to discount a lot of pop Christianity to understand this, having Jesus as your mediator doesn't mean I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want to do with my life. No, 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 no. It's way, way, way better than that. Rather, Christ forgives us of our sin and is slowly transforming us through his Holy Spirit to become more like him. In other words, we become more like our mediator, the person who's handling our relationship with God because he's absolutely flawless and perfect. We become more like him. That's part of the job. Isn't that amazing? So that we learn to obey him out of transformed hearts. So, Trusting in Jesus as our mediator doesn't mean doing whatever we want to do and asking God to forgive us. That's not Christianity. Rather, it means confessing our sin. It means finding our assurance in God's character. A lot of people struggle with assurance. I hope sometime next year, I, uh, Pastor Tyler and I are talking about doing a series on assurance. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons that I believe people struggle with assurance of, of salvation or just assurance that God loves them is people think assurance questions are primarily introspective questions. Like, do I have all the fruit of the Christian? When did I start becoming Christian? How do I know I started becoming Christian? Yada, yada, yada. Like, they're talking about themselves. And most of the time when people tell me, I'm not sure if I have assurance, what they go on to do is talk about themselves. But assurance is found in getting to know the character of God. And once you know who God is, and as you learn to trust him and rest in him, and as you learn to trust this person, this high priest, this Jesus, who handles our relationship with God, assurance is a great byproduct or fruit of that as we learn to trust him and as we learn to know his character. We don't look for assurance in our own character. But in Jesus' character, because he is our mediator, we are not our own mediator. If you feel bad about disobeying the first commandment and having other gods in your life besides the one true God, introspection will help you understand your guilt 
But it will do nothing to help rid you of that guilt. To get past that guilt, you must look up from yourself to your mediator, who even now is standing before the Father so that you can be forgiven of your idolatry. And it is just as true with all of the other sins that the Ten Commandments remind us that we're practicing. And if maybe perhaps this is more recent. If you struggle with coveting, you're materialistic. You're spending money on stuff you don't need. You're always frustrated at all these things you don't have. If you, if you have a covetous heart, it's good to know that. It's good to, to look inside your soul and realize, man, I'm a coveter. Like Jesus died for this. This is, this is a terrible, great sin. But don't let your eyes linger in your soul. Look up to your mediator who died for your coveting. And if you never look up to him, you'll never ever get over that guilt, at least in a Christian way. And if you do ever get past the guilt by looking at yourself, you'll just simply be deceived by thinking that you're a good enough person that God will now look past your coveting. No, God will never look past your coveting. He punished Jesus for it on the cross. You look to Jesus for your guilt. Does this, does this make sense? Is this connecting? Do you understand this? No, we find assurance in Christ, our mediator. If you're worried about your case in court, and you have a lawyer who's doing all the talking, you need to trust in your lawyer if you've got a good lawyer, right? I mean, if you're not saying a word... You're not the one arguing your case. Your argument, since, it's, since you're not making one, your argument's not going to determine your sentencing. Your lawyer is. So if you have a good mediator, he'll take care of it. If Jesus is your mediator, trust him to make you okay with God. And I'm not just talking, I mean, I am talking to the lost. I am talking to the non-Christian. But Christian, listen, I'm talking just as much to you. You need to spend the rest of your life after conversion remembering that Jesus makes you okay with God. That is not something we just initially realize as we come to Christ. That is a reality we have to soak in until we get to heaven if we don't want to be bound down by our guilt and shame. So some, just some final thoughts. Number one, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, are you tired of trying to handle guilt on your own? Are you tired of trying to handle guilt on your own. Now, in our secular culture, people deal with guilt in one of two ways, and they're very extreme. And, and you can actually find out, you can see these methods by just looking at celebrity culture, because we have two kinds of celebrities, okay? We have people that have done really, really terrible, horrible things that live immoral lifestyles, and, and all their moral, uh, all their immorality is sort of explained away, like it's just, they turn a blind eye to it. People just sort of deny it. And there's other people that either do terrible things or do something politically incorrect and they, they, get, they get canceled. That's what we call it, right? You know, canceling is condemnation without hope. It's condemnation without, without a chance of ever being forgiven. But that's, that's what our culture does. If you pay attention to popular culture, you see, and you're a Christian, and, and you look at culture through Christian lens, you've already seen how crazy this is. Sin is either completely denied and celebrated, right? I can do whatever the heck I want. There's no one to judge me. Or people are canceled and they can never be forgiven. Like the public will never, ever be okay with them. But there is no atonement 
in secular culture. Why? Because secular culture has no Christ to give them atonement. So you are, uh, your sin is either completely ignored, or you, at least I guess you try to ignore it as long as you can, or you're stuck and you can never find grace. That's how our world deals with guilt. And so if you're not a Christian, I mean, how is that working out for you? Do you really want to be a, a, live in a world where you either have to turn a blind eye to the guilt and shame that's eating you up from the inside, or eventually just be condemned for it without hope? That's the only two options the non-Christian world offers you. There is literally nothing else on the table, I promise you. And if you think that kind of sucks, then come to Jesus Christ. Because you don't have to deny your guilt or be hopeless in it. You can actually find forgiveness for it in Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, as we've looked at the Ten Commandments and as you have experienced conviction from looking at the Ten Commandments, how have you responded to that? The trying harder band-aid is not an option. Giving up on holiness is not an option either. Ignoring our mediator is not going to work. My son, Owen, my, my, I guess I have two sons. My older son, Owen, likes to try to do things on his own. And most of those things he cannot do on his own, and he ends up breaking something. He said, Daddy, I want to do that. And he has this, like, if you know Owen, he has this really intense way of talking. I want to do that. And then he messes it up. That's what we do with our relationship with God. God tells us we have a mediator in Jesus. We have a high priest in Jesus. He spends 24-7 praying us into heaven. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, there is a way to deal with that by taking it to Christ. And we tell God in our self-righteousness, I want to do that. Are you tired of doing that? (laughs) Are you tired of that yet? And I hope you are. I really hope you are. We respond to God's demands by resting in Jesus' mediatorial work for us. Stop telling God you want to do that on your own. Let Jesus handle your relationship with God. If you're not a Christian, that means let him give you a relationship with God. And if you are a Christian, remember how you got saved. There was something you realized you could never do on your own. When did you change your mind about that? If you're feeling guilt, if you're feeling ashamed, if you're feeling like you don't measure up, you're absolutely right. But the good news is we have a mediator in Jesus. So run to him.